So here we are, episode 58 of the Mainly Stupid Podcast. We have a very special guest, a uh, friend of my family's, um, one of, I'll call her a pioneer of female aviators, uh, following a long line of aviators in her family, and just an overall awesome person. Uh, we have Sally Gear joining us. Uh, Huey is the co-host, is always here. And also joining in with God knows what is my father. So this should be interesting. So uh, I hope you guys like it, um, but we'll just get right down to it. Welcome, Sally. How are hey, you? Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, be nice to your dad. He and I go way back. Uh, <laughs> small small way kids way fishing, they are fishing in uh, Cape Nethic River. So. so Sally, I guess we'll start off with um, where did it all start? You know, where did you, where'd you grow up? How'd you get so to? Quick, so it's funny how I ended up in Maine, but uh, sadly enough, um, I'm one of six, well, that's, that's not the sad part, but I'm one of six <laughs> kids and uh, the second to the youngest uh, beating out my twin brother by four and a half minutes. So um, my dad was killed in an aviation accident when he was CEO of a squadron in Stanford, Florida, which is right next to Orlando. And I was 13 months old and my oldest sibling, my sister was 15. So 15 to 13 months, my mom was widowed with six kids. She, my dad was killed in January and, uh, and it, it rocked the community he was in, the vigilante community, because he was one of the first Navy test pilots. And he actually died aboard an aircraft carrier doing um, landings uh, with a plane that he as a test pilot didn't should be out there, the vigilante, at a really long fuselage. And it has different variants. In fact, it was actually the early variant to what would become the F-14. But um, the fuselage was really long, so that re that relates to instability issues. And if you have ever looked at the deck of an aircraft carrier, there's no room for mistakes. That being said, he'd already done a series of uh, day landings at touch and goes and traps, which was when you'd come to a full stop on an aircraft carrier and he was going to be doing some night landings and had actually called my mom shipped ashore who's off the north carolina coast so he she talked to him that afternoon and um she was a little concerned about how he was feeling and and uh um and i i think he, i guess he assaged her feel her you know mind with that he was okay but anyway he ended up having what's called um uh, a ramp strike and by that the back of an aircraft carrier is a ramp and the deck is angled so that if a plane was to continue off or do a touch and go or what they call a bolter where um, on the aircraft carrier the planes are stopped by um, a, what's called a tail hook that is extended down from the airplane and it goes down with the landing gear and that's everything so when you land on an aircraft carrier there are four wires ideally you want to hook the third wire but sometimes the tail hook, which is big metal piece um, will attach the airplane might bounce. You might get a hook skip. You might get, you might just land long. Uh, I mean, we're talking, you have um, variation to go from one to four is less than 18 inches of, of, of height on your airplane. And then that is combined, not just with height, but of course, lineup and stuff. So, and remember the aircraft carrier is moving. So it's making wind across the deck. And then if there were waves and George, you know all about this, you have pitch and roll combined with that. So it's, uh, it's basically landing on a moving runway. So 
long story that I didn't need to make so long short, my dad had a ramp strike where basically the wheels were sheared and the plane went over the edge and off the angled deck. And um, they always have helos that are launched, you know, that are out there, but he went off. He never attempted ejection. So um, the plat tapes, uh, what we call platform tapes, every aircraft landing is recorded. And uh, with my time in service and people I knew I was able to use get use my connections and I was able to view the plat tapes of my dad and I can just tell you he was slumped over so the feeling is he had a heart attack before he landed because he never responded to um there's always a landing safety officer he never res never responded to the power calls that the landing safety officer gave him so um we don't know that because we never recovered the plane or his body he ended up going in the deep trench that's off of the Carolinas, about 90 miles off the coast is a trench that goes down three miles and that's where he um, rested. So he never recovered. So we can only assume what happened. But so that's the beginning of, of what would become our journey as a family without a dad. So my mom didn't know where to go. She was originally from Maine and her only sibling lived um, Kim Stanwood lived in York. And so my mom decided she would go be where family was. So she showed up in the summertime and bought a big house right there in York, uh, built in 1720. Um, and uh, it was right in York, it had a barn and it was within, my mom looked at it and said it's within walking distance to the schools and everything because my mom was the only one that could drive at the time and she was a nurse. So as much as we wanted to live out in the country, kind of where you guys are, um, the situation with the number of kids and access to facilities predicated that we live in town. But my mom, always being the interesting person that she was, um, <laughs> <laughs> showed up and um, went to, uh, my dad had been stationed at, in White Sands as a test pilot in uh, New, right outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we um, had a ranch. And we had 24 ponies and donkeys. So my mom went to New Mexico and took a two horse trailer and in that two horse trailer, she put two ponies and her favorite donkey. And there we sat in York and I can't even think of like what the people of York, I mean, I wasn't old enough to gauge their feelings, but I can imagine it was, there's a lot of stories that were going around and probably still are about my mom and us living there right in the middle of town. So that's where I grew up in York with my siblings and, um, you know, um, had a great life, you know, very simple, not, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there's a lot of family, there wasn't a lot of things, but I think there's something to be said for that. But uh, I will tell you of the six kids, my mom raised three of us, three of them uh, went into the military and three went into medicine. So I think, uh, George, you were, I think you're at my mom's funeral. I mean, we referred to her as a force multiplier, which is a term we use in the Navy. You know, when you take assets like Navy SEALs and stuff and because of how they can project themselves. I mean, there's some, there's added synergy to what they can do. So we call, um, we call those kind of things force multipliers. So I always called my mom a force multiplier. So, but that's, um, that was the beginning of my journey. So to be honest with you, I went into the military and into flying. I didn't do it as a kid or anything. And I think I was just like a lot of young ladies are uh, and young kids in general, but um, you know, I was like looking, I mean, George knew me through those years. I mean, I was a good kid. I wasn't bad. I wasn't in trouble, but definitely. 
I, I would take, I, I would say I would take the road less traveled, you know, and, and, and the journey was jet, you know, it, you know, I, there were switchbacks and stuff, good, good hiking stuff in my, in my life and, and in my plans. But in the end, when I, I decided what I wanted to do, I did it with a real conviction and uh, decided I wanted to go in the Navy. So I did that. I went to University of Florida and uh, I went to York High School and then took my last two years were in a, in a prep school in Andover, Massachusetts. And then I went to uh, not the Naval Academy, but I actually went to six different colleges and ended up at University of Florida with my twin brother and there I did ROTC and buckled down and uh, just dove into um, the academics and becoming a pilot or what I wanted to be was a pilot. You don't know, that's the thing, you get your commissioning, you don't know what you're going to get. So I was already obligated to go in the service. But right. I had a brother that was a nuclear uh, engineer um, in, in the Navy and another brother that was surface and then a brother-in-law that was a pilot. So I, you know, and they had done the academy and ROTC and stuff. So, I mean, the military wasn't foreign to me. And even though my dad wasn't present, he was very big and my mom he was very big in our lives. And uh, even when my mom remarried and uh, um, my dad was still just, you know, he was a huge, he was a huge force in my life. And my mom, you know, always cited things he did. So I felt like he was always a part of my life, but Flying, I think, just gave me a chance to find him. I know that sounds a little weird, but um, I just was looking. I was looking for him. I think I just wanted to identify with this man who, you know, had birthed these great kids and, you know, and, and his, this woman. And I just wanted to go find out who he was. And I remember, I realize I'm talking a lot, but I remember when that a moment, it transitioned from... Um, from it being his journey and my journey. And it was at the Florabama coast. I was on a little, my solo in um, the T-34 Bravo. It's a, like a mentor, it's a little training. It's a training plane we do. And understand I had never done any flying, private flying before I went in the Navy. And, and um, I remember like flying back and it was really hazy and stuff. And it's almost like you can't even see like a mile. But I remember, like, I always felt like he was always there in the cockpit with me and on my shoulder. And I just, I just knew at that moment, like, I had arrived. And I said, you know, out loud to nobody except maybe him feeling like he was there. I said, okay, Dad, I, I got this. I know why I'm here. Thank you. And just keep, you know, stay on my shoulder. So anyway, that was the beginning of flying. I wanted to fly jets. So you get into flight school, which was a great honor, but you don't know what you're going to get until your grades come out. And it's based on it's based on two things, class standing, and you don't even know who you're going to graduate with. So you don't even know who the competition is. And oh, by the way, there are three other squadrons. So you don't even know like who's graduating. And uh, so three, so I wanted jets, but it's, so it's grades and it's class it's uh, needs of the Navy, always needs of the Navy. Well, um, I knew they were only going to be, they were letting women into the jet pipeline, the full combat jet pipeline. And um, there were going to be six women allowed. And I was one of them. So that's the pioneer part, I think. Just to be clear, that there were women before me. I mean, I'm not talking about the WASP and stuff. There were always those women, you know, the ones that broke ground. And then there were women in the Navy aviation program 
that weren't in the combat pipeline. And, the, and even after me, there are women that do things. But, you know, pioneers are not just one person on one journey. There's a whole, there's a whole trail of them. So, you right. know, <clears throat> one, I was one of many, and I tip my hat to those before me. And, you know, and I tip my hat to those who came after me and who benefited from what I did for them. But I, I think gratitude probably is the catchword for all of us women, you know, that have been on these paths before, we all know we owe a debt of gratitude um, to the women who like, who did it right, you know, because it, it takes like one misstep and people were, are looking for you to fail. I mean, I hate to say that, but you know, there were those that were on the sidelines rooting for you and those were the sidelines, you know, waiting for you to trip and fall, so. Anyway. Well, and I think too, you're not even, it's not even a trip and fall. It's just kick the rock in the wrong spot. You know, it's, you're under a microscope. Oh yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and, you know, yeah. to be, a, to be that trailblazer and to, you know, make that ultimate goal, it, it's, it says a lot about, you know, not only just your character growing up, but also what you have behind you and, you know, keeping that goal in mind at all times. It's like, he, he, you, you know, know you are a trailblazer you, you know what's funny though garrett like people say i mean you know like what like i always look at people and go like what what differentiates from people who like do something with their lives and those who like maybe do less than something don't reach their full potential and you know what it was for me it's weird but it was like my family i didn't want to disappoint them I did not want to let my family down my mom raised us and I kind of see this I mean not to like 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 spy on your but I see that with your family Garrett and who I don't, who I don't know yours but I just see how like your wife you've got such a tight unit there and I think that's so cool because a lot of people are disconnected and you know before you started the podcast we talked about a little bit about this with COVID you know that if nothing else, I mean, for all the suck factor that we have with this, the cool thing is, is that it's a reset and that we can, maybe people are like tuning into their families and spending time with their families and being present, you know, with their families. And I'm hoping that carries on because that was the kind of leadership and presence that my family had in my life that made me who I am. It, it's not, it's genetics to a certain extent, but environment. I mean, my mother made, created an environment where she instilled in us um, that, you know, lovers and friends will come and go, but your family's always there. And, you know, you need to, you need to represent and make them proud and do the right thing, if not for yourself at times for them. So, and I think that's really what kept me on the straight and narrow path. So. Well, at least you stayed on the straight and narrow. Straight I, and narrow? I, I'm not. I, I took a much harder path. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, listen, I'm, listen. I, I have stories, but they're not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not for this podcast. And I'm just telling you. My wife already threatened me not to tell any. So <laughs> About me, George? Oh, no. I, I was, before you showed up, before I knew you were coming, I was like, oh, wait, I could tell you some stories about your dad. But anyway, anyway. So, at this time when you're becoming one of those six women into the combat yeah. uh, pipeline, what, what year was this? What, when was this going down? So 1984, the women had been in the jet pipeline, but they didn't do the full syllabus. So again, you know, there's usually a trigger for everything, right? A trigger event. So the trigger for women going into combat was, um, and you know, I feel like 
disrespectful that it, her name escapes me, but because uh, I wasn't following it, I was too busy trying to get good grades and stuff. But there was a woman who was um, flying jet and got in an inverted flat spin and couldn't recover. And women at that time were not going through the out of control flight syllabus. They weren't doing aircraft carrier landings. They weren't doing um, bombing. They weren't doing air combat maneuvering. They were doing, I think they're doing formation, but they were like big four or five big phases out of the jet pipeline that they were not doing because they weren't going in combat. So the syllabus I went through was the combat syllabus. So right now were women allowed in combat? No, but that's another story during my time. And with another trigger event, women would be, um, would be, um, had the doors open for combat. Again, another trigger event wasn't the right trigger, but um, it happened and, and, uh, and, but the women, they decided, they said, well, we can't have another fatality based on the fact that we didn't give all the training. So they put women through the whole, whole pipeline. And, were, and I think uh, she's, we're coming up this summer, it'll be a year. Um, Rosemary Mariner was really the pioneer. She passed away of cancer too early, but she um, knocked on doors and rattled a lot of cages and worked in Congress to change those rules. And I actually worked for her at one time and I couldn't tell you, and George, you'll laugh about this. When she heard I was engaged, she called me to her office and she freaking reamed me upside down, left and right. You know, like, how dare you? There are women who count on you. You can't be a naval aviator and do everything you have to do and be married. And like, she goes, I want you to call that wedding off. And I'm like, <laughs> well, since I got the shit. Well, you know, I mean, and then what, 13 years later, I ended up divorcing. So she might have been on to something, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, but you got three awesome kids, so. Yeah. I know, I know. So just shut my mouth, I know. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, Rosemary, like, you know, I think there was an I told you so in there somewhere. But anyway, she, yeah, she was, uh, I mean, and those, like I said, those women, they endured a lot. I mean, and I'm not saying I didn't, but I think, you know, the answer to people wanting you to fail was just, dig in deeper, work harder, be, you know, uber professional, you know, don't let your guard down. I mean, yeah, um, I was never going to be part of I really, th <clears throat> and I don't know if it's a quality because of growing up in York or if it's a quality of keeping similar families and family values and, you know, growing up around each other. But like, I have that. I if someone, t the worst thing anyone has ever said to me is you can't do that because oh. fuck you, motherfucker. Yeah. I'm going to bury you and yeah. I'm going to do it and I'm going to celebrate when I do it. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's, I mean, it's one thing that, I mean, my parents learned at a very early age with me is tell me, don't tell me I can't do it because I will do it and I'll try harder to do it. And I think that's the same way my father grew up mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I, well, I, it's funny your grandfather pete and my mom were very good friends very close i mean those two went back they're both widow widower not like they weren't romantically involved but they both had the utmost respect and admiration for each other and i think that's one reason i'm so close to your dad and his you know and his sisters is because well not only did we live through the woods <laughs> we could go and you know, <laughs> yeah yeah, so uh um yeah, it was uh it was those values. I agree with you. I mean, yeah, don't don't tell me I can't do something because it just puts a fire in my belly, you know? Yeah. And I think that's 
I think that's the problem. Everyone thinks they're entitled to something. You know, nobody, I didn't ask for anyone to hand me anything, but don't tell me I can't have the opportunity to try. George, I don't know if you remember this. I went out for punt, pass, and kick. I was like, I was like, I'm going to do punt, pass, and kick. And I mean, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't. Because growing up with a twin brother, like, definitely did something to me, too. I mean, like, why, how come he gets to do it and I don't? I wanted to do that. It was the tomboy. I wanted yeah. to. Right. Yeah. Now, what was it like going through this, going through in the Navy, into this program? Training. With- you know, I was, the, I was the first girl in the squadron. And the first squadron, so you go to Jets, and I picked Kingsville, Texas. So there were three jet bases, and I picked Kingsville, Texas, and I picked it for this crazy reason because it was home of Kingsville, King Ranch in Kingsville, Texas. And King Ranch is one of some of the finest quarter horses ever bred, and I knew it was like a a thousand acres of ranch. And I thought, shoot, like when I'm not busy flying, I could go like ride their horses. Okay. Well, I mean, I was pretty busy. I didn't have a chance, but I actually, I did. I did go to King Ranch and talk to him and I did ride their horses and actually picked up a horse down there. Every duty station, I always picked up a horse to dabble with and stuff and train because I mean, yeah, you work hard and stuff, but I also had a no date policy. I wasn't like going to date anybody um, because I was, you are, you're focused in, in your studying. It's like a master's program or a doctorate program. I mean, you're always studying, getting ready for the next flight. And you could be on the schedule twice or you could have a couple of days off, but you still had to know the systems inside and out. And I mean, it's high tempo and the heat down in Texas, George lives it. I mean, I'm telling you summer days on the tarmac, you know, you got a jet engine running, you got one in front of you blowing hot, you know, jet, jet air on you. I mean, it was like 120 in the cockpit and you had, you were full, you know, fully suited gloves, oxygen mask and helmet on, and there was no air conditioning. It was like, shoot, it was like roasting. So, um, yeah, it was like, it was physically and um, physically and like, and mentally very, you know, a lot of work and, and very draining, but, and it was a long syllabus. I mean, jet training was, cause you went to two different types of aircraft. Now they have one, you know, they have the T-45, but back when I did, it was the T-2 and then the A-4, which is just an awesome little airplane. But um, yeah, and then, you know, you do formation. Now we're doing the full syllabus and it all, you know, you end up going out to the aircraft carrier and stuff. And, you know, a lot of times people think, okay, well, you're with an instructor. I got news for you. When you go to the aircraft carrier, you're solo. There, there's ain't no motherfucker that's going to get in that plane. <laughs> <laughs> so... So you do that. I mean, that's what the culmination. You get graded every landing at the airfield. It's graded, and you get downs. I mean, you get kicked. They'll kick you out in a heartbeat academically. You 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 screw up. You screw up two flights, and you're done. Done. Oh, I remember when you landed your first aircraft carrier landed. Did you remember? I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember because I was a th- I remember driving to the base, and I had a three o'clock brief, three a.m., and I was like. I was just like going, God, I love my life, you know? I mean, and that's the beauty about the military. I mean, some people like regiment and stuff. I like knowing, I think probably because deep down, like before they were diagnosing ADD, I definitely think I am and was. That's a gift because I'll tell you, flying is like multitasking. That's what it is. It's about being able to like prioritize, like, and being able to handle different things and not get, you know, thrown off by any single one of them. So, um, and that, you know, people, and so here's the other thing. So what kind of major, what do you think I majored in in, in college to be an, a pilot? George, don't answer this. You might know. George has no idea. No, don't worry about that. 
George, just put it this way. So who was this between Josh and Sally? Who's the smart one? That was Josh. Josh. My twin brother was a brainiac. He's a doctor. He's like, I, I was a poli sci major. You know, people go like, oh, were you an aero major? I'm like, I don't have to build the damn airplane. I just have to fly it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth, though. I'm just, the point is, you don't have to be that technical major because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not testing the airplane. I'm just, and you learn basic aerodynamics and stuff. But I was, I would have struggled with that. I would never have made it. So poli sci, I'm like, what, cocktail party conversation, jack of all trades, master of nothing. That's me, guys. That's me. (laughs) so you talk about multitasking and flying a plane one of the before we started recording we were talking about uh dan petterson the the founder of top gun one of the founders of top gun he he told the story on that podcast where he was it was a night flight in vietnam going back to a carrier and he lost all his interior electronics and had to use a, a flashlight to see and then the guy he was flying with ended up guiding him onto the carrier yeah so, so they, they train you with that so yeah that's like a gca where he follows him and then the deck will be lit up and he can follow them. yeah 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 talk about i mean yeah well, talk about carry and i'll put some hair on your chest yeah so you know well my uncle died on a flying on mission carry a mission over in europe and I just read the report last year. It just became unclassified. And in it was the thing they looked at is he didn't have a flashlight. Are and he went through an electrical storm. And I think that may have been part of that is not being able to recover is he didn't have the flashlight. It wasn't on his checked-in equipment. Are you and and during, when they did the analysis of it, that was oh you know, my part God. of a cause. Oh, my God. I mean, doesn't that just make you sick to your stomach? You're thinking... Because you're something, right. Something as simple as a flashlight could have saved. Yeah, a, a $3 flashlight. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, we carry them. I mean, I fly commercial now, and we carry a flashlight. You never think about, like, like, those are things you, I mean, I carry it around for a pre-flight, but you're right. I mean, I've had, I've had, you know, smoke in the cockpit. Like, you know, they talk about the planes on fire. How about smoke in the cockpit? I had smoke in the cockpit, and I, like, my eyes were burning. I couldn't see an electrical fire. I'm like, what the hell? Like, what? You can't like blow the canopy because I the seat goes too. Like, how do you get out? Now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I I tell you what I give. I mean, the technology is amazing for in aviation now. I mean, amazing. In fact, when I moved to civilian, which was just recently, remember I took all those I was out of the cockpit for twenty five years. I could not believe the redundancy of the systems. I mean, flying now is easy. The only thing that worries me is that the kids growing up and doing aviation and like flying the glass cockpits and stuff, like, do they really know how to fly? And what happens if they lose? What happens if they have to go on their standby instruments? In the Navy, I used to be able to have to fly off my standby instruments. They'd put a hood on us in the back and they'd bail all our instruments in the back and we had to fly dead reckoning and stuff, like stuff that they did in, Vietnam, I mean, sans the, the flashlight, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's and the tech, the kids these days, like, and I fly with them. I mean, you know, great guys and technologically they're good and they're good gamers and everything, but they can't land. Those bad landings you get, that's them. 
<laughs> I was well. That that's one of the things I because I don't know if you know. Well, obviously you know Karen's son Conrad is a pilot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he did kind of take. He was given a lot of opportunities to fly as a young kid, and you know one of the youngest people in the country in the country to ever have his pilot's license. I mean, I think he got it on his 14th birthday or whatever, 16th birthday, whatever, whenever he could. And, but at the same time, he went and flew banner planes in Virginia. He flew banner planes, you know. He did banner. Didn't he do some, did he do some cross dusting too? Or did he do, because down in Florida, I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities. No, he, he did a lot of biplane, uh, not biplane, but uh, seaplanes down in, um, flying out of Fort Lauderdale and all that. So I think like, and that's where like, I look at him and I'm, you know, out of everyone that I know that has ever flown a plane, he's one of the last people I worry about because I know he's had so much flight time on shithole airplanes. Well, you know what? He paid his dues. He paid his dues and he's learned. And a lot of these guys though, they get their time and they're so, okay. So pre COVID like, like delicious this. March 1st, there was a huge pilot shortage. Right, right now, June 1st, you know, couple, there's a huge pilot overage. Right. I mean, amazing how it's like, in fact, it's surreal to us. I took a video in Houston. I hit on March 31st, over two days, I hit Newark, Chicago, Denver, Houston, plus all the little small airports in between. And I videotaped and I was like, this is epic what's happening here because they were starting to clear out things where, you know, some stores were shut and stuff. And it was like, the, it was like the beginning of the worst part of the pandemic where flights were just getting canceled. Yeah. And I actually took leave of absence because I didn't want to have to be sitting at the airport when, and with no way to get there. I didn't know what was going to happen because I was based out of New York and living in Virginia Beach. So, um, yeah, it was crazy, but, um, but he, yeah, he's not, he's the exception to that. A lot of these guys, they, they would come in with low hours. We're flying, we're flying for the commercial because um, they were so short of pilots. And a lot of them were just um, CFIs, um, certified flight instructors. That's where they'd gotten their time instructing other people. They had no jet time, no experience. And a lot of them like just flying with sometimes, well, because remember I was, I'm in, was in the right seat. I'm in the right seat, so I'm not, I'm not flying with a lot of greenies. But just because I knew a lot of greenies, um, they were uh, like the pot captains I flew with would would tell me about how like scared they were about turbulence and stuff. And I'm like, oh my god, they've, they've like I've been like struck by lightning and stuff. They have no, <laughs> have no idea. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting. Now you can be sure that the people who come back to flying are going to be hopefully they're. A, a, the guy I know is a uh, pilot for JetBlue, and yeah. he was he sent me a text message. He was on a flight, and he sent me a text message of like the sunrise, and and I noticed in the picture that his co-pilot was scrolling Facebook on his phone. I was like, that does not give me <laughs> a warm fuzzy feeling whatsoever about. By airline pilots, he goes. That he thing, he is he, for the landing and takeoff. 
Yeah, that's 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 what he said. He's like, we're only there to get. They want you to be on autopilot. We I didn't even grow like I I flew the A four. We didn't have autopilot. Like, what are you talking about? I, we could trim the plane up and it could fly itself, but autopilot. In fact, um, yeah. Well, anyway, that is listen. In fact, autopilot's mandatory above eighteen thousand feet. Right. So, yeah, it's like yeah, they want us to be on autopilot and. And when the weather's really bad, they, you're on autopilot as low as 100 feet, and then you take the plane if you see only if you see the runway. Otherwise, it's all they trust the system more. I tend to be from my roots in the military. I'm like, okay, I know more than this airplane does, and I've learned to like trust the system and stuff. But everyone else, like 400 feet autopilot, I'll, I'll always hand fly the plane to like 15 or 16,000 feet, and then I'll then I'll call for the autopilot. But I don't. I like to hand fly. I like to know I can fly the plane. And I really like like crosswind landings. I mean, I always like it to be challenging. Well, it's what keeps you interested, right? I mean, I think it's, so. <clears throat> I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. And that's where you know anybody I think wants a challenge. I mean, I would say you took on the biggest challenge of you know breaking barriers and then you know getting into flying in the Navy as you did, and then now you've taken on this whole we'll kind of transition a little bit, but like Island dog rescue. That's, <laughs> that's another. Yeah. I mean, cause you weren't busy enough with the farm that you have in Virginia beach and your three kids and your husband. Now we just need, we need one more thing on our plate. Yeah. There's more things. There's, there's, so the dog rescue came so so segueing. So my mom remarries when I'm eight, and lives the guy she marries lives in has a house in the Caribbean. So I moved in third grade. I moved to the Caribbean. Well, my mom because she wanted to. Uh, these are her words. She said, "You need to have. I want you to have hair on your chest." Okay, like hello. <laughs> And she goes, and the only way to do that is to do what your older siblings did, and that's to move around a lot, like change schools. So I went to, I mean, some of them were still in York, I mean, between, you know, York Beach and stuff, but I went to 13 different schools in Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and, and then I think that's why I did six colleges, because, like, who does that, you know? <laughs> I couldn't imagine doing one high school, let alone six colleges. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So I, I went to three high schools. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I was, grew up my, with my mom in the bush getting dogs, rescuing dogs from the Caribbean. So my, I grew up dog rescuing, all animal rescuing, horses, donkeys. The only thing I didn't do was cats. Not nothing personal against cats, but I didn't rescue. No, it's cats. okay. We're an anti-cat yeah, podcast. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> Except tigers. Like big cats are cool. Oh wait a second. Okay, my son made me watch that. Tigers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the oh stupidest bullshit I've ever oh, seen. That was a waste of what about five hours of mine. He's been. It's addictive. He like had me binge watch. I go here. I cannot like. People can't be real. Like, I don't have time for this drama. And it saddens me to think that people like this really exist. And even more importantly, people like that go to those things. So, anyway, yeah. I know of not, I only know that there was some show I've never heard or seen. Oh, you got to watch it. No, I, I you don't have the attention span. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> no, it, 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 it keeps you. I mean, it's, it's entertaining. Well, and I mean, now it just came out that Carol Baskin got 
uh, Joe Exotic Zoo now. He she owns it. What? Yeah, just came out this week. See, that's the problem with this COVID nineteen. It makes me excited to hear that Carol Baskin <laughs> owns a fucking zoo in where Oklahoma or whatever it is. I, it's, why does that shit? Six months ago, that shit didn't even matter to me. And now I'm like, what about all the baby tigers? <laughs> I know. Those little cubby bears. I know. I don't know. I don't know. That was the worst part about it. You see, just breeding those tigers constantly. I know. How so, bad. So how they bad. could make money off of the cubs, and then they just end up with all these big tigers that are eating, you know, so expired the, sausages. Yeah, yeah. Or or the local dog or horse. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I mean, and that's, and that's really the problem, the lack of, you know, animals follow their instincts, and we set them up and we've domesticated dogs and stuff. And so my feeling is about the overpopulation problem with um, unwanted, whether it's horses, dogs, cats, is that we're, you know, we, we, we deserve better than that. And we owe them spay neuter. We owe people access to um, a neuter clinics. I think they should be free by the by the county because that's a lot cheaper than having all the animal control and managing unwanted um, animal populations. And um, so the dog rescue thing started and it just went well, for lack of viral, literally and figuratively. My little rescue, Island Dog Rescue went viral after um, Hurricane Irma and then Maria because that's when I chartered that big jet and brought them 400 plus animals to my farm. Holy cow. And that's just awesome. I mean, and I've never, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I just to be clear, they didn't stay there. They were gone and matter rescues came and got them, but I evacuated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bill didn't even know. He did not even know. He came back from London the night of, and I said, I got to get up at one o'clock is what's going on. I go, there's a plane. (laughs) He saw, you know how my son was in, Gear was in Afghanistan, and he read it on the Drudge Report. He's like, he's like, saw this, and he clicked on the link, it was Virginia Pilot, because sounds like something my mother would do, and he goes, oh my God, that is my mother. <laughs> 400, so is it just 400 straight, uh, straight You know what, no, no, not off the street. So Irma had come and decimated the um, shelter in St. Thomas, so their dogs were in crates, like literally in crates. They had no vet, it was a mess and very little common. Honestly, from my 20 plus years in the military, I fed up, I was home for two weeks getting friggin' eyeglasses, can you believe it? Like, in fact, like they did a prescription and you have to wait for them and then you try them. And to this day, I, I don't, those eyeglasses don't even work. I swear to God, I felt like it was my mother tapping somebody on the shoulder and go, excuse me, my daughter can't fly for two weeks. She's gotta come home for a reason, figure out what it is so she can be around. Because if I was in training at that time, when you're in simulators and you're like training in the airlines, you don't know what day of the week it is. Your sim might be at one in the morning. All you're doing is, I mean, George, it might be like bridge training for your guys. That's all you're doing. You're focusing on that. You have no idea. You live, eat, and sleep like studying and simulators. That's it. So, um, so I just happened to be home and I'm like, Irma hit. So I, in my office, I have a glass wall, half wall, and it was like a command and control center. And I had all this stuff up and I was like, who can help me? And because I'm on the board of directors and because I have connections with, I mean, it's a small government, so 
not because I know people, but you know, I knew who the senators were and the representatives. And so, you know, they'd use sat phones and stuff. There was no comps. Well, I could talk to St. Croix. Well, I'm watching off of Africa. I mean, so was CNN. I was watching off of Africa, this like system forming and which would become um, tropical depression became Hurricane Maria. And um, I was watching it come across and I'm like, God, that could be like going to the Caribbean and St. Croix. And sure enough, in, in 79, I wasn't in St. Croix, but we totally lost our home as did most of the island to Hurricane Hugo. So I knew what a Cat 5 hurricane could do. And Hurricane Maria was coming. So I was on the phone with um, a company called Amerijet in Miami, Florida. And I was getting supplies. I was sending down every three, every two days, I, was, I would pay people's tickets down there. It was like 50 bucks to go down there. And I got people, um, I was sending generators down there. We were sending um, insulin every, for people and for animals. And we were taking care of everybody. And I would send people down there and I'd say, you know, you pay for your way back. Um, they were going, they couldn't fly to St. Thomas. They would go into Puerto Rico. They were running boats across. It was kind of like a drug deal. Like, you know, I'd give people cash and stuff and I said, get these supplies to St. Thomas you've got, you have to give me at least five days down there helping them. So that's what they did. So I had all these people going down. So we probably sent, I forget what the final count was, but every other day I was sending between 700 and a thousand pounds down on the airlines. And this is before I worked for them. So United American, I mean, they were wonderful. They were letting me send everything. It was all, all in the name of humanitarian services. Anyway, so I'm watching Maria come and I'm like, so I'm talking to Amerijet and I'm like, okay, we're going to charter a plane. And, and the people down on the islands are like, oh yeah, well, the National Guard will do it. They said they would. I talked to a pilot and I'm like, okay, I was in the military. Now it doesn't matter what I want to carry unless it's Christmas presents or something. I can't like load up a plane full of animals and land someplace. So I went ahead and talked to Amerijet and said, hey, I want to be ready to go with a private plane. So we were going to use a 767. We had to end up using a 737 because the airport couldn't um, handle the, they couldn't do anything with the, they couldn't load because everything was destroyed in St. Thomas. So the plane went to, was going to go to St. Thomas. And I said, I want to go to St. Croix and get their animals. If I'm going to pay $87,000, then, well, then we got to get St. Croix. So anyway, I didn't pay 87. I'll explain that in a second. So the total bill was $112,000 and I raised it in 24 hours. And yeah. is that because first of all, it was in the news. Second of all, somebody, uh, an organization that wishes to remain anonymous said, Hey, we'll give you 50,000 in matching funds. If you can raise 50. So That's like, amazing. Oh. Yeah. And then I was getting checks for 10,000. I mean, that was a 501 C3. So they weren't coming to me. Um, but uh, we got 112,000 and I got a call at one in the morning and Janice called me and said, Hey, I'm looking at the weather. And I was like sleeping for three or four hours. Remember Bill's I'm home alone, right? With my dog and I'm waiting for my reading. Glasses. And um, so I said, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the same thing. She goes, we have to move this up 24 hours. And I go, I agree. So, so, and I knew like, I knew fuel constraints. I knew they only had so much time on the ground it, between going to St. Thomas and St. Croix where they weren't going to refuel because St. Croix was getting ready for the hurricane. So they went to St. Thomas, went to St. Croix, 
got their animals, took a little longer, and then flew and arrived here at one in the morning. So a couple things. When they got to, um, so we raised the money. 36 hours after they left St. Croix, the shelter where we took 65 animals, dogs, cats. This is dogs and cats. So you can't be anti-cat here. Um, 36 hours later, the shelter was gone, just sticks, just piles of sticks. So all those animals would have been dead. So the animal, the plane landed. At first, you know, we're like, oh, go to Newark and stuff. And I'm like, how about Norfolk? Because here's what I know. You go to Tarmac and, you know, the logistics and groups. I'm going, I have a farm 20 minutes from the airport. And so I took the stalls and I made them into where we organized them so we could stack kennels. We had places to walk, had plenty of, you know, real estate to walk. We had over, like, it's a little bit of a fog to me because I hadn't slept or anything. But when I went, I left here at 1 in the 1230 at night to go and meet, um, to go in to the airport. The police met me there. And I had, like, I'd already gone. I'd already hired, well, she ended up donating her time, a vet clinic and all their techs. I didn't have to, but I said, hey, these animals have been, like, in an arduous situation. I need somebody to do a check on them. So they were going to be checked and cleared. So we had triage set up. We had a car that was dedicated to going to emergency if we had to get a dog there. When I got there, the police were there. And I'm like, and I'd gone to the city because I used to consult for them. And so I like, I knew everybody. I thought, like, what the hell did I forget that they're going to shut me down? The police said, um, we're going to have to give you an escort. There are 160 cars lined up to help you move those animals to your farm. Holy shit. Yeah. So here it is. It's one in the morning. So like it had gotten out. I mean, this is like, this is like where like a media should have been there, but they weren't. And so we got in there and people would take animals and they would go and they went to the farm and we cleared the field next to me for people to park. And we were just bait and we had big, had rented big lights and floodlights and stuff. And at seven, I mean, I was exhausted. It was up all night and like media was there in the morning. I let the vet do this. I was like, I was just numb. Um, I let the vet do the talking there, but rescue organizations that were coming to meet were already there arriving. In four days, all the animals were gone. I mean, that first day, over 400 arrived. I mean, over 200 left the first day. The next day, vans came. So all the animals, like, went to, like, pre-planned rescue partners. You know, it wasn't just haphazard. Yeah. But understand, I took dogs and animals that I knew nothing about. Like, some of them had been seizure cases from DEA and stuff. Like, so you don't know, and you're like, you know. So we had set up all this stuff. We had releases. We had rules, we had, you know, armbands, we had people designated, we had people that were handling the cats, and we used, I had an apartment there, they set up a cat or whatever they do for cats. Anyway, it was freaking it was amazing. Of those dogs, one, well, only one expired, and, and we, he didn't expire. She was extremely heartworn positive. She was in congestive heart failure. She was triaged, and she went right to the ER, and they called me. And I just said, hey, make her comfortable, let her, you know, they said, look, she's, she's not going to make it, not going to be. So she lived for two days and knew love and stuff for two days, and then we let her go. And then another dog I had to put down because he was part of the DEA seizure and was just unpredictable. Like, we didn't know what the trigger was and would just go after a dog and, you know, again, made the decision, but not, not till we got him to a nice, safe, quiet place, let him have, but it wasn't adoptable, just the liability was too great. But those were the only two dogs we lost in that. And then, um, I that so that was the Virgin Islands, and I've been moving dogs from St. Croix, you know, all along. I've helped St. Thomas, and I swore to God I would never go into Puerto Rico. And 
like I'm up to my fucking elbows in Puerto Rico right now. And it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess because you can't, like, I don't know what, I don't know how you, like, we're all about, like, we're, we're rescue, rehabilitate, rehome, resolve. And, you know, the resolve parts, like, I'm not, I'm all about, I'm not one of those people that likes to just kind of, like, keep, like, addressing, you know, the outside of the problem. I'm like, what's, what's the root of the problem? Like, how exactly. do we Get, get down to the root cause and, and stop it. I mean, and, and, yeah, so that you don't have, that you're not repeating the mistakes that we keep making. So in St. Croix, if you can get your arms around that. And so we struggle and I'm on the board and, you know, we have humane education, community outreach, um, low cost, no cost, spay, neuter. And the big thing, and, you know, so here's the argument. I'm going to give you this. So for anybody out there who might be going, well, what about, you know, dogs in the U.S.? Well, first of all, these are U.S. dogs because those are U.S. territories. Secondly, my other argument is dogs, animals don't choose their citizenship. It's where they happen to be. And third, I'll go wherever there's need. And I don't care if it's China, whatever. Like, I mean, that's not what I do, but I don't like, I, I, I don't judge those people that go to China and get the meat trade dogs or whatever, you know, like as long as everyone's heart's in the right place, but whatever we do, let's always get and start addressing what the root problem is. And in the Caribbean, it's cultural, it's resources, it's um, selfishness. And, you know, at the rate that animals can, you know, reproduce and stuff, it's, it's very difficult to control. So I will have to say that it was bad after Hurricane Maria. In fact, um, Nation Swell did a really cool video with some clips I did about the causes. And then you had the earthquakes. But um, I will tell you, in the last 45 days, I've moved 700 animals. Holy cow. That's incredible. Yeah, some of them are up in uh, your neck of the woods. I, I heard some of them coming up this way. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, I grew up, obviously, you know, you know, my parents raised and bred labs. I love them. Yeah, I love it. I don't have a problem with that. But I'd like I to pissed off my dog. parents so bad this fall. Oh, did you adopt a dog? Did you rescue dog? I did. Oh, good for you. Where from? <laughs> Uh, actually it was very local and it was one of those cases where I've kind of mentioned it on here before, but I, Huey unfortunately lost his lab this past August, September. Yeah. Last August, last August. And it was a dog I had hunted over. I, you know, putting down a dog is fucking the worst thing in the world. It's like, it goes right up there. You know, they talk, like losing, it's a family member. Like, it, it really is. And, you know, if you're worth your, if you're worth a shit, it's worth like losing a family member. If and you're not there, then something's wrong with you. I was alone. I would have rather died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I was you know, I was out working. I was down in Connecticut. I was not around anybody to like hang out with or talk about, and I wasn't there you know to be there for Huey. And it it hit me super 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 hard. And I remember sitting in my hotel room just being like. You know, this is not fair. Like, it, it sucks. Like, it, it was cancer with his dog. And, you know, it was it was one of those things where it was like, you know, it, it was better that the decision that was made. Right. I, I don't fault any decision that was made, but it was still like, still sucks. And, you know, that dog brought back so many ducks to me and all this. And I had always wanted, I'm actually looking at a picture right now. You can't see it because it's behind you, but it's a picture of a Chessie that we used to have. Um, 
for the life of me, I couldn't tell you how long we actually had that dog. I think it was under a year, maybe, maybe a year and a half, but we had to rehome it because it was a Chessie and we had another male dog in the house that they just fought and they were trying to establish dominance. And, And I get that, but I've always loved the Chessie. I'm, you know, huge into waterfowling. That's all I want to do. That's all I care about. Well, and your mom besides and dad, my family. <laughs> I, I will tell you, like people think people who rescue like me are anti-breeders, and I'm not. In fact, I totally support and and um people the 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 quality small breeders like George and Kathy. Um, they raise quality dogs. They take care of them. You can know who the parents are. My issues are with the puppy mills. People are so uneducated. They don't understand where they they come from, mostly the Amish or backyard breeders and who don't care about quality. We we have, we have a, a, one of my volunteers is, has right now one of eight boxer puppies that they have to bottle feed because eight of them from different litters have cleft palate, you know? Yeah. And, and honestly, those breeders would just kill the dogs and, and, you know, that might, I, I mean, with, without rescues, but I, I resent, like the last thing a rescuer wants to be is a rescuer. I would want to be out of business. I would love to find a way to not do this. But the argument people will give me is we have dogs in the U.S. And my question is, well, what the fuck are we doing 20 years later still rescuing dogs from the South? Like, why aren't, why isn't the legislation in place that goes after these people that don't take care of their animals and, you know, the, the thing is, there are laws that can that can mitigate a lot of this. And the same with Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, and nobody's willing to do it. It's like, you know, that you can't, you, we can regulate cars and how people drive and, you know, licenses and stuff. Why can't we do that with, why can't we do that with animals? You know, it's good to have all this pain and suffering. Well, and that's where, like, we, you know, when I started, as soon as Huey had to put down his dog, I started looking again because, I mean, the fact of the matter is my, my lab is 10. He'll be 10 this November. He's getting up there. We're not going to be able to hunt him. Now, did my parents, did I know that my parents already had impregnated a dog? <laughs> because he wanted a dog. Yeah. Not necessarily for me specifically. Uh, yeah. Uh, you kept a dog out of it too. So yeah, but I wasn't intending. Yeah. Oh, fuck you weren't. It sounds like Huey, Huey, you and I need to duck, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've learned over the years that 10, 15 years I've known these guys is I just. (laughs) (laughs) Can I go like, can I recharge my rum and Coke here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it's, it's one of those things where it was like, all right, I think now, and looking at my situation and I, I still think I made the right decision. And I think my parents at this point are on board with knowing that they, nice. that I made the right decision with. That know, is awesome. A, a puppy in my house would not have been good with a five-year-old and a three-year-old, especially yeah. trying to train it for trying to tra- trying to put in the time to train it, trying to put in the time to just get basic obedience and not chew up everything in the goddamn house everywhere. And I was, yeah. And so I came home, I got a, I found a lady that was getting, that was rehoming a dog and fact of the matter, she should have never owned the fucking dog to begin with. You know, the dog had been in three fights with her other dog. You know, the woman had gotten bit 
in the middle of the last fight. So she was like, all right, that's the last straw. Well, that's a, that can, yeah, if that's reported, that's a, you know, a hit against the dog, unfortunately. So. But, you know, this lady is 70 plus years old, retired teacher, maybe 110 pounds soaking wet. This fucking Chessie in my house is 88 fucking pounds. She's a horse. Yeah. It's a yeah. goddamn horse. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, so we, we went and met it and the dog seemed great. She had staples in her leg. We took her to the vet, you know, got her checked out. She was all fine. And then I left, like I left my wife with a question mark. <laughs> like my wife is a fucking saint and yep. I will be the first person to admit this. I think both of our wives are. Yeah. I think all three of oh, our wives. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and it went, you know, it was, it was my first experience ever a rehoming a dog, not mm-hmm. of a dog that I did not know, but also like, you know, kind of the adoption process and getting used to a new dog in the house. And still it's sort of, there are times where it's questionable still in the house. I mean, if I tickle, sh- this dog is incredible. Um, if I try and mess with any of my kids, like if I try and tickle them, if I, if we're just like horsing around, that dog is in my face barking and trying to get between me and the girls. She doesn't see it as poorly. Yeah. Yeah. And she hates my father. Only when she, when I walk in the door. Hates him. She goes. It sounds like she's like, it sounds like she's definitely more like, like inclined towards women anyway, but she loves me. Well, she loves Huey. She loves me, but she does not like, (laughs) she's, she has recognized and she is my daughter's dog. My oldest daughter, Olivia, she is her dog. It does not matter. And it's, it's awesome. I love it. And it's, you know, that must be reassuring. I mean, that, you know, first date, can you imagine that dog, that first date uh, going to happen for a long time. Uh, yeah, there's enough guns in this house. It's not going to happen for a real, yeah. real, real long time. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully we're still under COVID and we're all locked down and she can't date until she's 26. <laughs> so my first dog that Derek, that Derek, that Garrett mentioned, um, Riley, Yellow Lab, I got him. I... It fell in your lap. Were, I, I, it fell in my lap. I rescued him. I adopted him. He was just under a year old when I got him, and it was it was an ad, a classified ad, basically. And the family had two small dogs, and they were moving into a smaller house. And unfortunately, they had to give Riley up. So I jumped on him. I went and met him, took him home. I mean, his AKC paperwork hadn't even been registered yet. Um, <clears throat> So I the first place I brought him was to George and Kathy's house. And she and she met him and you know, he was a he was he was a new he was a puppy, you know, a, a year old puppy and, and uh the first two weeks were hell and I regretted every day. <laughs> and then after that Kathy started working with him. And she said, I remember her saying to me, he is somewhere in his bloodline. There is hunting. There's something because he, he was, he just picked it up and we hunted. 
four, five, six years with him. And every, he was going out when I wasn't going on. He would go out with Georgia Garrett. Really? And, and unfortunately, last August, uh, or at the end of July, um, we noticed him starting to limp and just figured it was age. And then my wife had him, and he went to get in the back of her car, and he fell over backwards, and then he couldn't walk at all. So we, he got had can had a tumor crushing his femur essentially, oh. and so wasn't was it bone cancer or a different kind? It was hemostoma, something or other yeah. cancer, and it was it was it was three days from really? when we brought him to the vets to when we made the decision, well, and ultimately hey, the vet told me he said we could take his leg. And he can maybe live six months. We can take his leg and do chemotherapy and he can live six months. Or you can just let him go on let him let him go without having to go through all that relearning. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That was and that was it was crushing. I Well uh, no preparation for it. No, I I I I know. I mean and every time I even tell him now, like look at my, I have four and I have one pair of red and it's a yellow lab. That's and what he was for the marriage. Yeah. So, um, he, I, and I tell him, you know, someday I know you guys will be gone, but I just going to remind you and myself how much I appreciate you now. And for all the pain that I'm going to go through, I wouldn't trade what I have right now. You know, that's exactly I'll it. Never, I'll never do this again. And I'm like, but would you give up all that love and all that caring and all those, those, you know, events and, and hunting trips. <laughs> that dog, I, I pulled in, my parents were renting a lake house and I drove down the dirt road and he was sitting in the front seat of my truck and I had the windows down and mm-hmm. he saw the water and he jumped out of the truck and headed for the lake. So I parked the truck, I got out and I start, I wasn't walking, but I was moving at a trot to get down to the water because I didn't know whose yard he had gone through. And all of a sudden I hear a loon screeching and he had jumped up onto a man-made loon's nest that the state had put in the, in the lake. And he, I saw feathers and then I saw the loon take off. I'm like, all right. So he didn't, I don't think he killed anything, but that dog, just stories like that were we're rampant with him. That's some day. Well, I guess you like, like Kathy said, there's something in his bloodlines that made him. He was, yeah. always, I, I will say again, I've always appreciated, um, you know, like good breeders of, um, of stock that, you know, take care of their animals and their training and know where they're going. I've never, I've never had a problem with that. It's the, it's my issues, the puppy mills or just irresponsible ownership. Well, Speak of the devil. Your animals run and not spay neuter. Yeah. Here she is. And you'll ever make money at it. So yeah, the horse. The horse made an appearance. Yeah. Can't really see. Oh, her. The horse is there. Oh. Oh my gosh! Look at her. <laughs> and she's gone. <laughs> but so, as far as. How long have you been doing Island Dog Rescue since those? I've been doing it like informally. I mean, I'd have to say the 90s. I mean, I, I moved dogs. I mean, at 20 some years in the military, I didn't. But, you know, I, I'm right now I'm looking at a picture 
uh, that was painted by an artist and it's a, it's a building in St. Croix with like, like 12 dogs, all of the, all of some of the ones my mom rescued and came through our house and stuff. So I grew up with it, but Island Dog Rescue has been like going with a vengeance. I mean, we, yeah. my average is 200 to 300 dogs per month. Holy and believe it or not, there's actually a dog shortage up in the Northeast in Canada. Well, don't and, tell my wife that. Yeah. The so well, that, that's where I move them. So to be clear, I don't leave them in Florida. I fly them to every, every, like to every other week. I mean, it's hard to get a reservation. In fact, you're going to die. I was just, I just sent a request to Amerijet asking if I could charter a 767. I know. I know that's crazy. I know that's crazy, but you know, we, there's such, with hurricane season coming, the heat coming, and with flights no longer flying dogs, live cargo, there is such a demand. Let me just, um, let me just charter a plane and we'll put, we'll put six or 700 animals on it and get some relief for these for these rescues and i'm telling you they use that sounds like a lot of animals but spread out like shelters taking 20 here and there yeah. and, adopted. and these are highly adoptable animals i mean our facebook i do these stories i need to do more and I'm hey, Sammy. hey you hey do you want a pony <laughs> <laughs> yes she doesn't have headphones on but uh I, be I believe um grumpy and Grammy would gladly take a, a pony. I'll bring you a pony. Yeah, a pony. A pretty a pony. pony. Yeah. <laughs> mini dogs. Yeah, mini eyes. Let me look at, I mean, I, I don't, people don't know this, but we slaughter in this country. Well, okay, so technically we don't slaughter horses because we don't, we, we are better than that, but what we do is now we send them to Canada and Mexico to a horrific death where they are no longer protected under any of our our rules and um, or have any of our safeguards, and they ship live, and a lot of them die, a lot of them mares birth, uh, 20,000 plus horses a month. Die in Canada and Mexico? From the U.S., from the U.S. Go on, go look up Killpen, just... Go on Facebook and look at kill pen horses and you will see mares and foals. You'll see pregnant mares. They're not supposed to send them. They do it. And these are, and you know what? All the people, I don't think camp's going to be a big thing, but at the end of the summer, all those little camp horses, you're, you know, your kids fall in love with, guess where they go? Holy yeah. fuck. Yeah. People just don't, you know, it's and the thing is like rescuing horses. Like, yeah, you do it. I've, you know, rescued hundreds over, you know, over 20 years, but it's not like a dog, you know, not everyone can have a horse and can sponsor that. And there's a lot of care and there's vet bills and treat, you know, it's a whole different. It's a whole different I was talking to uh, a, a guy I know from York. Um, he, his daughter does barrel racing yeah. and he travels all around the country with her doing that. And they were in Kentucky um, and they happened to stop at a friend's house and there was two rescue horses that they had in a round pen that were uh, exiled race horses, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, this, yeah. That's what I have at my farm. And OTT, OT, OTTVs off the track thoroughbreds. Yeah. And he said he walked up and he put his arm in the round pen, and one came over and set his head right on his arm. Yeah. And he looked at his friend and said, "Put this one in the trailer. He's coming home with me." Ah, cool. <laughs> and well, he, I mean, and, I just. I just picked up a pony actually earlier today. 
picked up a pony <laughs> for, well, I mean, it's in Oklahoma, but it was a kill pen pony. And uh, so she'll be out, she'll be here in a week or so. Wow. I have the farm, I have the land. Yeah, if you got the land and the, yeah. the resources. Listen, you, and I, I have the time. I mean, I'm not flying. I've got time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I might not have, and I might and not you've have got a, a husband that just I, really I, is I really understanding. A, I might have. No, you know, he just doesn't know. I don't live at the farm. He has he, Garrett. He has no idea. And he has a boat. You keep him. Listen, two things can keep him happy. Sailing and sex. And sailing and sex. Not necessarily in that order. You know? <laughs> well, I'm glad you just told us you went sailing, so yeah. <laughs> we'll keep the other part on the other side. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, he, he doesn't, he doesn't know. So, so I've got a question. Okay. And did you have a call sign in the Navy? Like, I did. What, what was your call sign? Beach. Beach. Well, I think it was a variant of bitch, but beach. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this may answer my my second question. Do Do you get to pick your call sign, or does somebody else pick it for you? No, somebody else picks it for me. But okay. I tell you what, I barely escaped being called Pinky because I was sitting. Remember that hot tarmac in Kingsville, Texas? Yeah. Waiting for to get clearance onto the runway, and I would, and I knew there were planes in the pattern and. Um, I had the canopy up, and they said, uh, uh, you're cleared for an immediate takeoff. I'm like, okay, you know, and I took it, because you're burning fuel, and so the more fuel you burn, you know, the less time you get flying. So I turned, and everything's with a stick, it's not with a yoke. So I turned to look, I put the canopy down, and I had my hand on the, I had my hand on the rail, but not over there. I didn't, wasn't resting my hand, but enough where my pinky got caught and crushed in the canopy. And so now I'm on the runway and I like lifted it right away and like I'm running going down the runway into acceleration with the jets pretty fast and I'm like as I'm like passing 80 knots and I'm like I like all of a sudden I'm like oh my god my my gloves completely bloodied I thought maybe I'd severed my finger so I like aborted I called for the abort pulled off at the end and uh and they said, we'll have some of the fire trucks and stuff. And I, you know, I didn't like, I'm like, shit, what do I tell them? Anyway, the, the people, the fire trucks, they couldn't even wake them up. Those guys were sound asleep. Taxi, <laughs> the plane back in, not that they could have done anything for me. I guess they would have taken me by ambulance. Or, so anyway, I taxied in there. I got out of the plane. I didn't want to take off my glove because it was like soaked in blood. And, um, they took me to the hospital right there, you know, the small clinic and they took my, love off there fortunately my it was just crushed but um i avoided thank god the call sign pinky i'm like dear god don't let them change my call sign don't <laughs> so yeah i'll take beach any day so anyway well, that's what i uh i smashed the shit out of my pinky with my father's sister wait which one karen? uh karen it had to be karen not Silla. Yeah, I had to be sure. Yeah. Well, probably intentional. No, it was all on me. She took me sledding, and yeah. I took a metal runner sled off of a jump and landed on ice. And with your in, hand, the 
in the mi- in the midst of the jump, my hand made it to the bottom of the sled and uh, smashed my pinky, and I didn't want to tell anybody. It doesn't hurt for like thirty seconds, and then it all comes. It all comes like r- the blood and the, all the feeling, the nerves. There's a lot of nerves in that little pinky. Uh, yeah. There were. Yeah. Yeah, there were. Yeah, I don't have one either. I, I got mine smashed at sea. The guy. Oh, did around, you? Yeah. I smashed it and it split right away. Just you know, crushed. Uh, it's about a two hundred pound electric motor landed on it. So can you do this with your hand that got crushed? No, I can't. I can't do that anyway. It means I got to be no. So this is something that my wife, like pinky down, all other fingers up. I can't do that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like this. <laughs> I can't do that. Am I supposed to be able to? Well, so the other thing, like, so I can do it with one hand. Huey, can you curl your tongue? That's like genetic. Can you curl your tongue? Yeah. I can do that. I can roll my tongue. I can only close one eye. can't close my left eye. Oh, really? My right eye. Yeah, can't close my eye. We've gone straight off the rails. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, this, this one, like, even I can get this, but I cannot bend my pinky straight. Like, that pinky will not go. Oh, wow. Like, blame Karen. Now I'm infatuated with the fact I can't. (laughs) Maybe my call sign should be Pinky. (laughs) We'll get you the patch, Huey. We'll get you the patch. (laughs) Well, and the other thing that, I mean, kind of circling back to the military career, it's been awesome to see also that you've passed it on to your, well, I don't know if you feel it's awesome, but I think it's awesome that you've passed it on to your sons. So check um, this out. So Bill, so I'm married to a seal. His son leaves Saturday for he's just finished pre bud, so he's headed to bud. So he's in field training. Who is? And, um, Bill's son. And then my oldest is an intel officer and he's done three combat deployments. And then middle ones flying helicopters, the Romeos. Jesus. Um, and he's on a night flight right now doing tax form or something. He's finishing up at the, at the, at what they call the RAG, the FRS. So, so, and that, but he's got a, he'll be, um, he's got a squadron down there in Florida. And then uh, and that leaves Niall, the youngest one, who's good with a, you know, good shooter, FBI or something, but he's not eligible for the military for, for a genetic. You know, it's easy. It's very easy to be disqualified from the military. But yeah, three of four in the military, so not bad. So you're a force multiplier yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I'm telling you, George can tell you, man. Like, I would like kick my kids. I was a single mom for years and stuff. I would like, I like ruled with a, an iron. I think I, I get my iron mom. Fist. Yeah, I did tell you what, man. I would like kick him out of the car and leave him on the side of the road on a highway, which I know I shouldn't say that because. Child Protective Service. I mean, CPS could have like my well, in, in my childhood was my I, I my wife calls says I was a free range child, which yeah. <laughs> it, it makes more sense. Where I my parents were awesome; they were great, but they worked a lot, so I would go off and do stupid shit. And you know, there's stuff to this day that my mother doesn't know I did, and. Uh, I think we all can say that. Huh? Yeah. Yep. So it's just, we all grow up. My parents tried to say that they know everything, but I know they don't no, because no. I know we haven't had the conversations that they would know some of the stuff that they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but now I've got 
now they have grandkids, so they can't kill me now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's about time. I mean, a, a couple nice little family dinners, just stories start coming. Well, I always refer to ourselves as feral children when I was a kid growing up. Well, you know, it's yeah. not the truth, George, but what a great, like, what a great childhood. I mean, the lack of television, we would like, our imaginations were oh, yeah. as wild as we were. I mean, we but, my wife, her father is a 20-year retired Marine and spent a good portion of his career in the drill field as a drill instructor at Paris Island. So ah. she, <laughs> she, she, <laughs> bed, huh? yeah, she grew up in a very structured yeah. lifestyle, which is great. She's an incredible human being just for the fact that she She's puts awesome. up with me. Yeah, yeah. And so I was telling her a story of the fact both my parents were at work. I was home alone. I was like 10 or 11. And I got on my bike in Elliott, Maine and rode to downtown Portsmouth by myself. And she was absolutely floored at, at the fact that I did it. And my parents never even knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure my mom still doesn't know about it, but. And I won't tell her until I have grandkids, unless or she listens to this podcast. We'll yeah. too. Tell <laughs> true confession. I don't know how you can say your mother was so tough. She was the sweetest lady going. I was going to say, because I, I grew up, I remember spending time at your mom's, and not even with my parents, but because... Yeah, she'd hang, you'd hang out with her, yeah, yeah. Well, but it was because my next, the her neighbor was the Hardings. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was always at Charlie Harding and I, which he's doing awesome for himself. I mean, they've got talk about podcast, you know, um, jealousy, but you know, his podcast is picked up and they're doing awesome stuff with, you know, song stuff. And he's doing, this is Charlie, obviously Charlie jr. Yes. So he's, uh, he worked for Google for a long time and then he went to work. Um, now he's doing a podcast. It's called, um, uh, what's it's what's on pop. And it's basically they dissect, you know, modern day songs and take them on and look at them from a standpoint of, it doesn't matter if you look at a Beethoven versus a Miley Cyrus song. There are, there are similarities and there's reasons why those songs are catchy and it, it's really cool. They are switched on pop. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, but you know, growing up next door and like always seeing, you know, your mom around, like I, I loved going to that house. It was just something I loved. It was such a warm inviting. Your mom was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And I miss, I miss her dearly, but I would tell you, like, even if, when I was going up to visit her, it'd be like a sweat extra me. I'm like, okay, like, what, what? <laughs> just cause I was her daughter. She was very, I mean, she was tough on us, but it was good tough. I mean, I think. Well, right. And, but, but it's, sh- and I feel it from whether my parents know it or not, like, and, and it's part of the reason why I am the way I am, which rubs a lot of people the wrong way but it's you know i have expectations for myself that are so high because of the expectations that i know my parents have whether they want to tell me them or not i mean flat out i got kicked out of college my senior year 
Well, I, I got kicked out of college too. Do you think my parents were super impressed that I got kicked out of my father's alma mater? No. You think my mother knew? <laughs> uh, my father knew. My mother, no, my, mother, my mother only knew in the last couple of years of her life did she know. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but it was, you know. We couldn't do all that stuff, so. But it was similar where it's like, you know, I'm not going to let this define me and I'm going to be able to make it on my own. And You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what, there are lots of mistakes. I mean, that's the thing. People feel like they they have to be perfect and they, they don't know how broken my path was and all the insecurities and all the struggles I had. I mean, shoot, I, 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 what I did find and what I told my son who went through, Rye went through the same thing. I wasn't sure which way Rye would land. Honestly, I, I was pleasantly surprised when he, you know, made the path to go to the military, but that wasn't how it was for him. And he scared me because he reminded me of myself, but um, I found though, you know how like bad luck sometimes begets bad luck and things go downhill, you know, but it's the same thing with positive stuff. When things, when you do positive stuff in your, when you do positive stuff in your life, it, it can feed and it can snowball uphill. It can become good. And I just found the more successes I had and the more headway I made that it, it led to more, it more successes and it made me feel good. And I, I celebrated those. So I always tell people, look, no, that's why I believe, like, just do something good every day and let, it, and let your day build on that. Keep doing good acts and doing good things and, and making small successes. So if I was to leave anyone with that, anything, it would be, you know, every day strive to do something good and then do something else good. Keep just doing little things, okay? thousand percent. I mean... Truer word. Yeah, and I think you know, with with the turmoil that's going on in this country, I think that's exactly the message that's got to be sent, right? I mean, it's it it's not going to change overnight, but if you are, if you can open that door, if you can do that nicer thing for someone right. else, be nice to somebody, do something yeah. nice, take care of somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I didn't slap that, somebody today. Well, I mean, hey, good. Yeah, that's a good start, right? <laughs> I work in retail, Sally, so I. Oh my God! With everything that's going on, I, uh, <clears throat> I've, I've, I've been ready to slap a mother effer since. I March do have 15th. one still question for you, though. What do you got? How come TJ Maxx isn't considered essential? Because it sure is to me. <laughs> so, I don't work in that type of retail. Yeah, I sell uh, like lawn equipment and stuff like that. So oh, we have a. I'm in sales and parts and stuff like that. So we were deemed essential due to agriculture. Okay, good. good. Um, which and horse feed. Yeah, and we sell horse grade and, and dog food and, and stuff like fucking that. Fucking chickens. Yeah. <laughs> so we're I work at an agway, and oh, um, oh yeah, well I'm a tractor supply girl. We don't have agway. Hey, Bill, um, to see his hair. Come here, Bill. Don't let him see your hair, Bill. He's so deaf. He can't hear. That's the other reason. He doesn't know what I do because he can't hear shit. George is deaf too. Don't worry. George, Garrett, and Huey. Come here. He's going to show you his hair. Look how long it is. Did you read the book, you guys? I'm not finished, but I started. Well done. Turn so Bill's hair, I mean, that's not terrible. It's, no, it's shorter curly. than George's. Yeah. It's curly here. It's like it's curling around his ears. Well, let me call him wings. Yeah. I know that's what he had. 
yeah. go with my kilt. It's, oh yeah, he's gonna wear a kilt. Yeah, you gotta come. You're coming to the wedding. You're invited. Rise wedding. Save the date, October tenth. Whoa, 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 whoa! Uh, I have. Exa- <laughs> Why would you get married in October? October first is duck season. Come on. You know, it's funny because it's a three-day weekend. He's in the military, and he wants to have be able to celebrate his anniversary on a three-day weekend, and that kind of works out with his squadron schedule. So that's, that's how my wife and I did it on our wedding. It was Labor Day weekend. Well, honestly, it's the same weekend I got married to his dad. So. We had we had it on a we had our wedding on a Sunday, so Where's I didn't have to close my company. So yeah, so you have so it's on a Sunday, so. Yeah, I'll get you the details, but it's at the Military Aviation Museum, which is a private, beautiful museum down here in um, Virginia Beach, and check this out. Two of the airplanes in there are one I actually flew and one my dad flew. Actually. That is awesome. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So, there you go. I think that's that's the perfect note to like, you know, that's, that's awesome for you. I'm so happy for you, yeah, and it's, it's been so awesome to be able to talk to you. Nice talking to you guys. I'll be up there. I mean, good. Now that I know I can like hug you guys and nobody's going to freak out. That makes me happy. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we are, we bought a place. I put a moratorium about two miles away from your mom's place. No way. Where? We're down 103 towards Kittery. Good for you. Lovely. Uh, we've got 3,500 square feet and you are always welcome. I will say thank you because I'm sorry we called, but Ken and Barry are there, and Travis, my nephew, he's flying. I flew in the Navy, retired. He's flying for um, Atlas. He's flying cargo, uh, Amazon, I think now. But um, he's there, and he's on Century Hill. So Amazon. Well, and that's you know your brother lives just down the road from me. Of course, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. I wasn't forgetting him. Anyway, I look at. I mean, think about. It. Three, what half of my half of my siblings are up there in New York. I, I in fact, I would land in Portland at overnight, and I'd, I'd see uh, Sue and Tim and Josh. You know, I've seen them before. Um, the only time family. we hear from, Sa- but we'll go back to the dog thing. It's like we get a call from Sally at like nine o'clock. It's like um, they only gave me a Volvo. Can you give it a car? It's like sure. Yeah. Drive to Boston, change the car. I, you guys were awesome. You're awesome. Listen, if I do this big airlift, you guys have to help me. Gladly, yeah. anytime. I've got a truck. I've got, we don't have any um, equine animals yet. That's until George builds his new house. And then he, he does owe my mother a horse already. And I believe he, he owes my daughter. You want a pony or a mini horse? No, do a pony. Look, I'll get you some rescue ones. You guys talk to me. Yeah. Sally said, don't ever get any. Talk well, to me, I'll get you whatever. And that's, and that's the plan. But we just have chickens. Uh, we've got, I don't know if you've heard the squawking, but there's 16. And? And they're about, I don't know, three months old. Oh, good. And then uh, we've got another. We we started with, uh, what do we have out there? We had 18. We're down to eight uh, big, big chickens now. All because of me. Yeah, this is oh, yeah. all this is all his fault. Um, I hate chickens. Huey I, hates chickens. I know how to sell them. <laughs> five five years ago, 
uh, he convinced my wife to get six chickens. Who hates birds? Who my wife absolutely hates any bird. How about that for sales? That's funny. Yeah, he could. You talk about selling ice to an Eskimo. You're talking about selling chickens to a woman. chickens to a woman. <laughs> an avian anxiety. Yeah. Does <laughs> really? I mean, I've heard of that. Like some people are birds. Are oh, she birds. was deathly afraid of birds. I mean, except you know, she would kill a duck. Which Doctor Phil has killed ducks. Has killed ducks and probably happy killing ducks. If she exactly, but yeah. would pick them up and then we get these chickens and she's out there doing yoga with a goddamn chicken. So we get fainting goats. They have goat yoga and we do puppy. We do puppy rescue yoga. All right, that that seals it. You are never meeting my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will not let that happen because I'll end up with a pony, an island dog. <laughs> It'll change your life. I can't say for the better, but it'll change your life. Not- <laughs> yeah. yeah. It will change it. That's for sure. Have a couple kids on top of that. Yeah. You'll be fine. You'll be good to go. You'll be good to go. <laughs> well, Sally, thank you very much for hey, coming thank on. Thank you, guys. It's great talking to you. I thank you like so much. I feel like I'm home, so thanks for that. Well, Appreciate come home anytime, and you're always welcome. And anytime you want to talk about anything, all right. Well, I'll be in touch. I'll, be, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you guys. And as soon as we get a break in this uh, virus and this pandemic, I'll be up there. To see I you. think the riots just ended the virus, so we're good. I know. Listen, <laughs> let's go to stage four or whatever. You know, like with everything going on. Okay, let's just. I don't know whether to bring a mask or a rifle. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah. I know, my, my husband's got ours locked and locked and like chambered right here. He goes like, if there's ever yeah, because there was riots around here. I'm like, oh my god. So yeah, he's got the round chambered, ready to go. I'm like, okay. Yeah, there's there's a firearms within arms reach of yeah. all of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all we're all on the same page with that. So. Yeah. You guys, great. Thanks for including me. I really appreciate Thank it. You Thank so you so much. Yeah. Great talking. Bye. Bye. Bye.